If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Drimple. So, well, should we call it Battle of the Spies, this one? Because that seems to fit, doesn't it? It's a proper spy story we've it got It is a proper today. spy story. So, so where we left you on Tuesday, let me remind you, we are discussing the beginnings of the great game. The Tournament of Shadows. The tour- I, they, I they had the better it. title. I do think they had the better title in, in Russia. And we're going to talk about the events that lead up to the first Anglo-Afghan war. Um, let me just remind you what we talked about on Tuesday, shall I? So, we were discussing this growing tension, this mistrust that is bubbling away between the British and the Russians. So you have Lord Ellenborough who's saying, look, all we have to concentrate on now, all Britain has to do is stop expansion of Russia. And they have reason to fear the Russian expansion. But as William was saying, actually, they whip up a great storm of suspicion and hawkishness that you were saying that maybe they create the problem that they then have to face. William, that's right. Yes, there's this wonderful moment with William Moorcroft. Now, William Moorcroft, again, is one of these fabulous figures who is on one hand, a bona fide explorer, stroke. I think he's actually, he's he runs the East India Company stud is his job. <laughs> We're talking horses now. <laughs> we are We're talking not talking horses. Fabio from accounts. No. <laughs> it's the <Eastern laughs> company stud. It's not that. Not that kind of stud. Okay. okay. Where, did that, where did that come from? I just <laughs> Different times, so anyway, different back meanings. Back to history. Back to history. William Moorcroft, <laughs> who is a Himalayan explorer who's looking for horses and sources of... Uh, <laughs> sources of horses. <laughs> sources of horses was exactly what I was trying to avoid saying. <laughs> yeah. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> horses from Afghanistan. Because there's this, mm. this uh, feature of Indian history is that horses decline in the Indian plains. Because it's so hot, it's not natural horse territory. India, throughout its history, has had to import horses both from Central Asia and Afghanistan and from the Gulf. And the states in southern India import from the Gulf. And Delhi has always been the powerful centre in Indian history because it always got the first call on the the horses, the new strong horses coming in from Central Asia. Now, the East India Company still has the same thing. And it has to import its cavalry from Afghanistan. And this character, William Fraser, who's a very important part of this story. William Fraser is on the Elphinstone mission. And when he comes back from that, he sets up a horse trading business on the side. 
with James Skinner of Skinner's Horse. Now, Skinner's Horse is, is also the, the frontier force that guards the frontiers of the East India Company. It has regiments along the Sutledge patrolling the borders. And it's the one that will go into Afghanistan in the future with disastrous results, as we will see. But another of Fraser's sources is William Moorcroft, and he is in touch with Moorcroft. And when Moorcroft disappears in mysterious circumstances in the Himalayas and dies up there, it's Fraser who manages to retrieve his diaries and his uh, effects. And among those effects is a letter which is written from Count Nesselrode, the foreign minister of Russia, to Ranjit Singh, the lion of the Punjab, that confirms all the hawk's worst fears. Because Nesselrode is basically saying, Ranjit, anytime you want a bit of assistance, there are 100,000 Cossacks that will charge down from Central Asia and help you fight against the British. The Tsar is with you, but let's um, just sort of bring you up to speed with, with which Tsar, because we were with an Alexander, we are now with a Nicholas I, so 1825. Alexander I suddenly dies. This great underestimated hero, he's, he's one yeah. of the great figures of Russian history, and I think not one of the more famous Tsars. He's, no, he's one who, no. And he just, I mean, he's, he's suddenly out of the picture. And then what follows is when you have a power vacuum, you often have a coup. And so the Decemberist revolt follows the death of Alexander. His heir presumptive is a man called Constantine, who privately, and perhaps thinking about his own Russian history, says, I don't really want to do it. It's just <laughs> not a job. It's not a job it's for a sensible job. man. Yeah. I don't want to do it. So he puts his younger brother Nicholas in front. And that is why you have Emperor Nicholas I. The man wasn't meant to be Tsar, but it's just because his Constantine didn't want to do it. So while, while some of the army has, has said, okay, we accept Nicholas as a Tsar, there are still 3,000 troops, which you refer to as the Wagners of their day, the <laughs> Wagner group of their day, who try to mount a military coup in favour of Constantine, the man who doesn't want the job, which I just find quite <laughs> hilarious. The rebels, though, you know, they're not organised. They are fractious. They're fighting amongst themselves. So they confront the loyalists outside the Senate building and eventually the loyalists open fire with heavy artillery. They scatter the rebels. Many end up being sentenced to death. They're hanged or they're sent to prison or they're sent to exile in Siberia, which is like being executed in many ways, a very long, slow death in the frozen tundra. No no move to Belarus for them. No, for, no. Uh, or indeed off to, off to Niger or wherever the Wagner group are now going to be moving to. So, so these conspirators for Constantine, the man who doesn't want the job, are known as the Decemberists. Are the Decemberists a folk band? I think I've got some uh, some nice tracks by the Decemberists. I don't, I have no, I don't even know how to, I literally have no response to that other than this is, this is the look I'm giving you. <laughs> I will play you the December. Anyway, no, another, that's for another it's day. It's all right. It's another time. <laughs> Nicholas I. So, so he's already been, had this trial by fire with people who aren't willing to accept him. So this suddenly makes him stronger, makes him watchful gives him this iron will that will become part of his, his armour, if you like. So, Nicholas I, I'll give you a quick pen sketch of him. He's dutiful, he's hardworking. Um, he wants to, he understands government and power, so he wants to centralise his administration because he doesn't trust, you know, if you've got armies that can be fractious right at the start, you've got to hold on to power with your fist, and that's what he does. In public, he's described as being majestic, determined, the true autocrat. But 
you know, it, it's it's unusual because Peter the Great was all of those things as well. But there was a modernization program that started with Peter the Great. If you haven't heard our episode on that, do go back. And Catherine, the great modernizer, she, she's also somebody who tries to move things along, brings in Western ideas and literature and poetry. And instead, Nicholas kind of lurches back. It's orthodoxy, it's autocracy, it's nationality. This is a really important pivot point in Russian history. So that is the Russia that now Britain is looking at through timid fingers or rather through intrigue and getting their hands and getting their spies more motivated to do things. Um, we should say that the there is good reason to fear Russian aggression and Russian forward movement because since the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the Russians have moved incredibly fast through the Caucasus and have twice defeated Qajar Persia. And there's a whole wonderful episode for a future podcast on this character, Alexander Sergeyevich Griboyev, who is a Russian diplomat, playwright, poet, and composer, gets made the uh, Russian ambassador in Tehran, who's then pulled apart and killed by a mob in Tehran, because he is associated with these two very humiliating treaties that Russia imposes on Persia. That's the Treaty of Gulistan, which is 1813, and the Treaty of Turkmenchai, 1828. And in both of these, the enormous empire of the 19th century is sliced up to become much more like the Persia we see today on the map that's lost basically its whole northern half. And, mm. so, and so there's, you know, there's very real forward movement by the Russians into Persia and also threatening Constantinople and the Ottomans. So, the, I mean, the British think, okay, we, we can halt their advance. We're going to do this. What we'll do is we'll sell superior British goods. And if anyone wants to deal with them, they can't deal with us. We, you know, we've done this through trade and mercantile before. We'll do it again. So this is Ellenborough's idea. And Ellenborough has this sort of mysterious belief that British trade can somehow spread British ideas. And the British, it's very hard for us to imagine this because to us, it's very simple that the Russians and the British are both imperialist forces. They're both using modern weaponry to subject Asian kingdoms. But somehow the British preserve this idea that they are the center of freedom and liberalism while the Russians are the tyrants. And they genuinely believe this. And there is this belief that somehow if they can get Manchester cottons and, and all these sort of British export goods into Central Asia, somehow British ideas of freedom and liberality will spread. And this this all sounds bonkers to us, but this is stuff that Ellenborough is putting out in speeches in the House of Commons and, and House of Lords. Mm. Uh, and there is a real idea that the British can increase their influence through trade. Yeah, we'll trade our way to victory. We'll trade our way to victory. And yeah. in a more realistic and sober way, the East India Company, which is still running the show, although it's now lost its monopoly and is not at all the the kind of libertarian uh, free market force it was in the 18th century, uh, the East India Company realizes that they can do with the Indus what they've already done with the Ganges. They've used the Ganges in an age when uh, road transport in India is still pretty basic and, and you know, it's almost impossible to move during the monsoon. In an age when the, the rivers are still the main means of transport, the Ganges is the main motorway for the East India Company, and it's the main trading route. And the Indus, they want to do the same thing for. And so, But, but the trouble is that, the, A, politically, 
the Indus is split in its lower half between these Amirs of Sindh who are very anti any foreign interference, and B, they simply haven't got a map of it. There's no good map of, of the Indus, and this is what they want to, to sort out. So they send a man called Burns to do this work because if you if you want to if you want to know your rivers you need to have maps of rivers and Burns is the man and he's really interesting so Burns Alexander Burns 25 years old still really very very young man he's sent in and I oh I'm always shocked at how they send kind of almost little boys to do quite big things where history will turn he's an outsider he's a Scot he's of humble origins he's a cousin of Robbie Burns the poet he is, yes, but he's he's got really good linguistic skills, which mark him out. This guy from Montrose is very good at Persian, Arabic, Hindustani. He picks them up. And he also has this enthusiasm that they note in him for dangerous intelligence work. You know, he has he's charming. He can get into things. He can get out of things. And he's he's got that sense of drive that makes you want to, to put yourself on the front line. And the Brits notice this. Ranjit Singh, at the same time, is ruling Punjab. He's recently reciprocated treaties from the British king of friendship, saying, look, we'll send you some beautiful shawls, Kashmiri shawls, which Punjab is very famous for, and this is part of his kingdom at the time. And actually, the greatest of all Kashmir shawls are made at this time in the Punjab. Indeed. And they then influence this whole story. You know uh, the story about the Paisley? No, Paisley print. No. Is the that, Paisley pattern. It's from that that. that. that is from Kashmir shawls made at the time of Ranjit Singh. Really? Paisley and the Liberty print and stuff. It's all from the exactly. Ranjit Singh. Exactly. And the that. British then start making them in Paisley uh, in Scotland, which is why when they when these cheap imitations, if you like, made in Scotland begin right. to circulate around Europe, the pattern is known as the Paisley. But in fact, that shape uh, is originally Kashmiri. I love that. Well, it's well, it's a barn leaf. It's all based on a barn leaf. Exactly. That, that. So that's fascinating. So Ranjit Singh has sent him some of these very fine shawls. So now William the Fourth has decided he's got to send something back. What does he send back? This is my favourite story from the whole period. How do you use a diplomatic gift in order to advance imperialism? And it's Ellenborough who comes up with this rather brilliantly eccentric idea. What they know is that Rajik Singh's biggest passion, the thing he loves most of all, is horses. And so they decide to send as a gift to Rajit five huge Suffolk dray horses, cart horses, ones with those big sort of fluffy feet. They, I mean, they are huge. For people who don't know what a dray is, it is much larger than your average horse. It is so twice more muscular. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, they're huge. They're huge beasts. And lovely looking, lovely looking things. And no one in India has ever seen these before. They will be the largest horses ever seen in Asia. Uh, and the idea is that if they give these, they can tell Ranjit Singh, we want them to arrive with you in mint conditions. So we're not going to ride them through the wicked Amirs of Sindh and, and risk the uh, uh, the passage through the Punjab. We want to have your permission to send your gift up on a raft. What do you mean on the Indus? Which on is what the they Indus. Want to... Oh, there's <laughs> a coinky dink. So, okay. And Rajat Singh you know, is well aware what the Brits are trying to do, but on the other hand, he can't quite resist the idea of these dray horses. And then they add in just a kind of Rajat Singh's favourite phrase was to add uh, to add sugar in the milk. Uh, yes. And, uh, and so the sugar in the milk in this case is a heavy gilt English carriage, which had belonged to the Lord Mayor of London. All this is a means of getting 
a British raft up the Indus. And this is Burns' mission. This is Burns who's got to do this, to get the horses, the, the golden carriage, and also his pen and paper out. So originally, in the first draft of this plan, as planned by Edinburgh, it was going to be William Fraser's brother, James Bailey Fraser. And all the papers for this are a mile from where I'm now sitting in the Highlands, in, in Relig House, where James Bailey Fraser, who travels all the way through Qajar, Persia at this period, making illustrations, making friends. And Relig, which is just a mile from here, has a whole wing extension, which was built to accommodate the Qajar princes on their visit to the Highlands. Wow. And uh, in fact, they never came. So they bankrupted the estate. <laughs> 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 anyway, yeah. so because of the bankruptcy of the estate, because of the overreaching, because of the Kajar princes, James Bailey Fraser has to stay and deal sort with his bankruptcy. Sort of a hellstorm <laughs> that is his finances, yeah. <laughs> exactly. uh-huh. So instead, he recommends this young man, Alexander mm. Burns, who's another Scotsman, also from the Highlands. And it is, in the end, Alexander Burns who gets, age 25, the job of accompanying these horses up the Indus. What Ranjit Singh doesn't know, though he probably suspects, is that inside the carriage is a team of disguised draftsmen, cartographers, and naval and military surveyors. It's the full uh, spy craft kit. And all the way up, they are accurately mapping the river's banks, plumbing its depths and testing the practicality of sending British steamers upstream. Mm. And this is meant to be the preemptive strike before a whole wave of Manchester cottons go shooting up into Central Asia, bringing with them British ideas of freedom and democracy. Of course, doesn't work out. Yeah, I mean, I love I love young Burns, 25-year-old Burns. So he's, he's travelling up there, attracting so much attention, as you would, with enormous horses that nobody's ever seen before, and an enormous glittery carriage. And a, a few pot shots, but in the end, they make it. The, yeah, the- and he writes, for the first time, a dray horse was expected to gallop, canter, and perform all the evolutions of the most agile animal. His presents are received in great honour in Lahore on the 18th of July, 1831. There's a massive cavalry guard that welcomes a regiment of infantry sent to greet them. Uh, And he writes, the coach, which was a handsome vehicle, headed the procession. In the rear of the dray horses, we ourselves followed on elephants with the officers of the Maharaja. So, you know, even if it is a trick to get to map a river, it's kind of pleasing to both sides for now. Thing. And Burns, who is this sort of handsome, charming character, immediately makes friends with Ranjit Singh. Ranjit Singh greets him. He, he says he's passing through the palace when this, this old man suddenly grabs him and embraces him. And the two get into a sort of great drinking contest. And Ranjit Singh likes this. Oh, he's a big drinker. What, what is it he drinks? This, this well, he dr- ground musk. pearls and, you know, he, he grinds up pearls and puts it into his liquor of choice. I yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a wine as far as I know. I don't know what it was exactly. And a lot of conversation about Scotch whiskey goes on. And Ranjit Singh really can't make up his mind whether he's more interested in the dray horses, which he calls little elephants, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, Alexander Burns' crates of whiskey, which creates an immediate sensation in the Punjab. And But it, it's it, behind all this sort of bon omery, there is a great deal of diplomacy going on because Burns is making friends with Ranjit Singh and he is very successfully getting permission to do things that no Brit has done before in the Punjab. Because Ranjit Singh's been keeping the, the company for very good reasons at arm's length. Mm. Uh, and Burns is staying for an extended period of time in the court of Lahore. The first really detailed accounts that we get of Ranjit Singh from British observers comes from Alexander Burns. And he describes, for example, the Koh-i-Noor, which is for the first time described in a published British account in Burns's 
memoirs. Okay, and that, but we really ought to now turn our gaze back to Russia because you know this is this is happening. So the Brits think, okay, right, we've got a foot in here. We've got Ranjit Singh. We've got somebody who he likes, who's feeding us intel and drawing us maps. The Russians have landed in Constantinople. So Nicholas the first has given the ailing Sultan support against a revolt that had been starting, uh, stirring against him in the last two years. So he's in the British, slow to respond to the Sultan who's screaming for their help. So Tsar Nicholas just goes, right, all right, I'm in, you're mine, you owe me. And that, again, is causing a great deal of fluttering in, in Westminster. This is everything that Ellenborough has been worrying about and everything that Ellenborough has been predicting. So at this point, Burns gets orders to carry on. Originally, he was just going to deliver the, the horses to Rajat Singh, but he carries on and he goes on up to Kabul and Bukhara. And this is when Do- Dos Mohammed is in charge. Of- Dos Mohammed is in charge. And again, Wade, the, sp- the spy master who we met in the last episode, who is mm-hmm. the uh, the smiley, if you like, at the head the of smile the- smiley who's taken in Shah Shuja. He has been listening to all Shah Shuja has said, and he's built up Dos Mohammed as this great enemy of Britain. But Burns goes there and he finds that, in fact, uh, Dost Mohammed is, is absolutely keen as mustard to make friends with the British. And delightful. Delightful. He finds, <laughs> yes. and that contrary yes. to what uh, Shah Shuja has been telling Wade, he is very popular. He's regarded as a source of justice. He's established his rule, not just in Kabul, but over most of uh, Eastern and Southern Afghanistan. And Burns is sending back all this information that is completely contradicting everything that his bosses, the spy masters, Pottinger and Wade, have been feeding the British. He, I mean, he, becomes, he becomes a fanboy, actually. Actually, doesn't he? He's more than that. He's more than contradicting. He's saying, actually, this is a really good guy. This is a guy you can do business with. I'll give you a quote from from his dispatches. He said, "The reputation of Dost Mohammed Khan is made known to the traveller long before he enters the country. He is no one understands better." the ways of doing business. He's unremitting in attention to business and attends daily at the courthouse. The sort of decision is exceedingly popular with the people. Traders receive the greatest encouragement from him and the justice of this chief affords a constant theme of praise to all classes. The peasants rejoice at the absence of tyranny, the citizen at the safety of his home, the merchant at the equity of his decisions and protection of his property, and the soldiers at the regular manner in which their arrears are discharged. A man in power can have no higher praise. Okay, so I mean, there is that. That is that is proof of fanboy status right there. But more importantly, it is totally going against everything that the British establishment has been told, and it makes him extremely unpopular. So Burns then goes on to Bukhara, becomes the first British traveller to send a detailed account of Bukhara back home. Back in England, he's given the Royal Geographical Society Medal. He becomes fated. He goes to see Queen Victoria, all of which, of course, makes his bosses green with envy. And they, although he's now the most famous traveller of his generation, they're all set to cut him down to size when he gets back to India. Okay, well, I mean, he's already sort of given Dost Mohammed some good propaganda, which the British don't want to hear. They don't want to know about it. But they do certainly sit up and take notice because if they don't want to, you know, admire and do business with Dost Mohammed, and they don't give any kind of credibility to Burns, the Russians are going to do it instead. That's what we've learned, haven't we? That they are very quick to get on in there. So in the autumn of 1837, a, a young man called Henry Rawlinson, a, a British scholar working as a diplomat in Tehran, is heading through the night for a camp of the Shah of Iran near Nishapur in, in Persian Khorasan. And he's ridden over 700 miles 
Would you want to tell it? Yeah, this is one of my all-time favorite. Go on, stories. then you yeah. tell it. You pick it up. So it's a seven hundred mile ride that he's done. Then what happens? So Rawlinson is is again one of these sort of classic great game characters like Burns. He is an orientalist. He's brilliant at, at a whole variety of different languages, and he's just spent the previous two months at a place called Behistun translating ancient Persian cuneiform. And he's the guy that realizes that Behistun is the kind of Rosetta Stone for ancient Persia. And so he's been building a scaffolding, taking molds, and beginning to translate ancient Persian scripts for the first time. He's a crucial character. But his little sort of scholarly holiday is broken by the fact that news has come that the Persians are going to invade Herat in Afghanistan and that the Russians are going to help them do it. So poor old Rawlinson is sitting in in his Behistun copying inscriptions, and he gets orders to ride 700 miles to Meshed. And he rides and rides, and because there's a war about to break out with Herat, he can't get post horses, so he just is on the same old nag the whole way. And it's a long time since I have ridden anywhere, but I'm not sure how long you can stay in the saddle asleep. But some point in the night, Rawlinson blinks awake, maybe falling out of his saddle, hauls himself back on and realizes that the horse in the night has veered off the road, that he's been asleep and he's no idea where he is. And he's in the very, very dangerous borderlands of Afghanistan and Persia and it's dark and he's frightened. And then. Having wandered around for a little bit, the sun begins to come up behind the Kohi Shah Jahan mountains, and he's able to orientate himself. He realizes where uh, where east and north is, uh, and he heads back to what he thinks is the road. And just as he is expecting to meet the road, he sees ahead of him the last thing he wants to see, which is a cloud of dust rising before him. And it is, of course, a party of horsemen who are heading towards him. And he, he doesn't know who they are. So he does what I suppose any of us would do in the situation. He gets off his horse. He ties it up under an overhang of rock. He goes belly down and he watches to see who these people are. Are they Afghans? Are they Persians? Are they brigands? And what he sees in the next two minutes changes the course of history because it's none of these. It's not brigands. It's not Persians. It's not Afghans. It's a party of Cossacks riding into Afghanistan under the Russian flag. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's a pretty good story. You it's tell that very story. well. Join us after the break when we find out how exactly this changes the course of history. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Okay, so just before the break, we left you on the cliff edge that was Rawlinson looking out on a field of Cossacks, finally realizing the Russians are in Inski. I wanted to say, but I didn't. Well, I did. But, yeah. <laughs> so, so now what, William? So Rawlinson doesn't know quite what to do. Is he going to risk talking to these people? Is he just going to head back and tell everybody what he's seen? He decides eventually that he has to find out who these people are. So he heads after them. He's alone on a horse. And there's a party of 100 Cossacks led by this young, very handsome, blonde officer. And he follows their tracks, goes down a side road, which they've just, uh, a side valley, which they've just headed down, and finds them brewing up a samovar of tea by the riverbank. And there's this wonderful, uh, again, sort of great game moment when Rawlinson, one of the great Orientalists of his generation, comes mm. across this blonde officer. He doesn't know who he is. It is, in fact, a man called Ivan Vikovich, who is the Russian counterpart to Alexander Burns, the, the Orientalist James Bond of, of the Russian Secret Service. And the two of them face off. And neither of them want to sort of reveal what they're doing there, but the other, each is trying to discover what the other is. And so first of all, he tries French and Vikovic shakes his head. Then he tries Persian and Vikovic <laughs> shakes his head. Of course, he actually speaks both these languages completely fluently. And they end up having a conversation as you do in the great game in Jagatai Turkish, which Rawlinson notes in his, in his uh, letter that when he's reporting this, uh, he spoke with a slight Russian accent. <laughs> <laughs> People were made of different stuff back then, weren't they? They really were, certainly in terms of yeah. languages, they, they, yeah. they were. And this is everything that Ellen Burr and the Russophobes have been predicting. Mm. It's the crucial, it's, if you like, the yellow cake in the, in the, in the kind of you know, weapons of mass destruction story. It's the, it's the missing link in the espionage puzzle. Rawlinson has to get the word back again. And so although he's exhausted and has been in the saddle for 700 miles, five days across Persia, he heads straight back to the embassy in Tehran, where there's a man called John McNeil, who's from the Outer Isles, and is Ellenborough's man. He's a, the other biggest Russophobe who's been writing anonymous tracts in London about the Russian threat and who has been facing off against a, a master strategist in the Russian embassy in Tehran called Simonich, who's his great enemy, but uh, and who's been running rings around McNeil. But McNeil now has the vital bit of information which he's always been predicting. The Russians have gone into Afghanistan. And 
camel messengers are sent from Tehran to the Gulf. A steamer heads to Suez, where the uh, the telegraph has got to. Morse code is tapped out. A runner uh, is sent from the Foreign Office across the road to Downing Street. The Russians have gone into Afghanistan, mm. and in actual fact, none of this is is as it's made out to be. This is a very very tentative exploratory expedition. It's not an invasion. Even Vikovic is a much more mysterious character than he looks. He's not actually Russian at all. He's Lithuanian. Uh, he was originally involved in an anti-Russian resistance movement called the Black Brothers. He and his school friends were rounded up by the Tsarist authorities and sent he's only, off. Like, he's a teenager. You, you really do mean he's, he's about 17 when he's picked up, he's isn't He's picked he? up age 17, sent off to uh, uh, south of the Urals in, uh, to a punishment posting. But he's so brilliant that while the rest of his friends die in these sort of terrible labor battalions and things, Vikovic rises in the service and he is spotted by the explorer Alexander von Humboldt. Humboldt as in Humboldt of the Penguin. Humboldt, Humboldt as in the Penguin, yes. as in, in the, the many volumes of Victorian exploration and, and so on. And he's amazed to see one of his own books in this distant Cossack cavalry battalion on the Orenburg line in Central Asia. And he asks, who's been reading my books here? And Vikovic steps forward. It turns out he's got all of Humboldt's books. Mm. And he amazes Humboldt by the fact that he speaks not only Jagatai, Perkish, Persian, but he's also learned Kazakh and has memorized the Quran by heart and knows Arabic. And so he writes this letter saying uh, this young man should not be in a distant Cossack mission. He is a, he's a brilliant young man. I think you should take more interest in him. So Vikovic is taken out and he becomes the Russian antidote to Alexander Burns. And mm -hmm. the Russians have now read Alexander Burns' account of his journey to Bukhara and Vikovic is sent basically to roll up. Burns's network. Just so I, I, I love the work, you know, these counterpoise characters, so Vitkovich and Burns. And then you also have, you mentioned just very briefly, Sir John McNeil, who is, you know, the spider in the web uh, now, and Simonich. And they too are sort of like completely counterpoised characters, exactly aren't they? Exactly that. And, and there's, uh, uh, McNeil is writing these tracks. I've got a, I've got a, a quote from him here in my notes. The, the only nation in Europe which attempts to aggrandize itself at the expense of its neighbors is Russia, he fumes. Russia alone threatens to overturn thrones, subvert empires, and subdue nations hitherto independent. The integrity and independence of Persia is necessary to the security of India and of Europe, and any attempt to subvert one is a blow struck to the other, an unequivocal act of hostility to England. What I find really interesting about that is that he publishes it anonymously and, and it proliferates. So again, it's kind of a propaganda. Somebody in the know, but we don't know who it is. I think diplomats would have to do that today. I mean, you couldn't, as yeah. an active diplomat, publish stuff openly, an opinion piece. But does he do it? Does he, he does it because he means it or he does it as an act of propaganda? Because we know that both of these things have been done of late. Well, in, in Britain, as in, you know, as today, there are, there are different factions. There are hawks and mm -hmm. there are doves. Uh, and he's very much appealing to the hawks. Uh, but of course, what he's also doing is ignoring the fact that the expansion of British possessions in India has continued without interruption from the first half of the 19th century, gobbling up far more land and overturning many more thrones than anything achieved by Russia. Uh, mm -hmm. But the book was nevertheless very well received and widely read in London. So he's an important and influential character. So things have changed. I mean, that, that moment that you, you told us so well uh, of Rawlinson 
looking at the sun rising over the Cossack troops and then seeing Vitkovich. How does it change everything? How do things change after that? So this is taken to validate all the overheated fears of hawkish British policy makers. Uh, and they've long feared that the Russians want to take over Afghanistan and use it as a base for attacking India. And this stray sighting in the desert by Rawlinson is the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And in, in London, this is wielded as evidence that the Russians are about to go into Afghanistan. And descriptions of Vikovic's Parchi are immediately sent to intelligence officials at the Khyber Pass uh, and the other entrances to India in case Vikovic is planning to continue on to India or even to negotiate with Ranjit Singh and the Sikh Khalsa. So it's action stations. Suddenly everyone okay. is, on, uh, is on alert. So as part of that alert, Alexander Burns is sent straight to Dorsa Muhammad. I mean, it's so It's Why isn't there a movie of this? This is yeah, so... No, so he's uh, dispatched. It's like, you liked him. You, you get on with him. Go, go now. So exactly that. And um, Rawlinson actually already knows that Burns is heading in this direction. Uh, Vikovic does not. And Vikovic crosses the boundary just as Burns is anyway being sent. Burns, I think, has got as far as Peshawar, which is now under Ranjit Singh, no longer under uh, Afghan control. And he's sent up into Kabul. And he's in Kabul beginning again his bromance, reigniting his bromance with Dost Mohammed Khan when mm. Vikovic arrives. <laughs> Must have been so cheesed <laughs> off. It's like a, it's a complete race against time between these two. And what yeah. Burns doesn't know is that Vikovic has already gone just before this sighting by Ronson to Bukhara, where mm. he has already exposed and rolled up Burns's intelligence network in wow. Bukhara. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on arrival in Bukhara, this is, this is before Rawlinson sees him, people come straight up to him because they see this blonde guy, because Burns is also blonde and blue-eyed. Uh, and he says, do you know Iskander? And Vikovic thinks he means, you know, Alexander the Great. Because, <laughs> well, well, Sikander is what Alexander is known yeah. as in that part of it. Iskander or Sikander, yeah. And they don't. They actually mean Alexander, Alexander. Burns. Alexander. <laughs> Uh, And so it doesn't take him long. It only takes him two weeks to uncover the intelligence network that Burns has established to send news back to India. I managed to find these notes from Vitkovich in the Tsarist archives. I was put in touch with a wonderful character called Alexander Morrison, who's at All Souls, who's the historian of this. And he put me in touch with a researcher he knew in Russia, and we found these letters. And this is the first time it's ever been published. And Vitkovich writes... The British have their man in Bukhara. He's a Kashmiri called Nizamuddin, and he's been living in Bukhara for four years under the pretext of trade. Uh, and, and anyway, the letter goes on and on and on, uh, talking about all the different people. So it compromises the entire network. He's discovered and compromised it. He also, from Bukhara, discovers that there's actually another Brit living in Kabul full time as the British spy in Kabul. And this is the man who has called himself Charles Masson. It's actually an assumed name, but Vikovic somehow hears about this in Bukhara and is sending messages back to Moscow and St. Petersburg saying that this guy is a British spy and is not to be trusted. When you say they roll up the network, I mean, are, are there people having their throats slit or are they just being exposed and they run away? No, I think that's me being slightly colourful using Le Carre speak. But, yeah, 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 uh, but yeah. no, he exposes them. So they can't do, the, they can't do anything I anymore. don't think he's actually killing anyone, no, but he's certainly telling the Russians who who is providing the information. Yes. So, I mean, they're defunct then. If you know who they are, then you know... Then they're not much use. use. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So, one of the great moments uh, of this whole story, Vitkovic arrives in Kabul on Christmas Day, I think it is, and the two of them can't resist it. So, Vitkovic and his opposite number, Burns, have Christmas lunch together. That's hilarious. And it's, it's I, I, lo- I love this story. So, these two great spies, these two Orientalists, fluent in, in multiple languages, both of them under 25, meet for Christmas dinner in December 1837. And of course, they fall into each other's arms. They're both very similar people. Neither of them are from the centre. They like each other. They would be friends in real life, really best mates. And they followed very similar trajectories. They both bothered to learn these languages. They've been sent to distant postings. Burns comes from the middle of nowhere, from Montrose in the Highlands. Vitkovic is a Lithuanian who was originally a revolutionary, now recruited by the Russian Secret Service. And this is the letter that Burns writes to London. He says, Vitkovic is a gentlemanly, agreeable man, about 30 years of age, and speaks French, Persian, and Turkish fluently. He wore the uniform of an officer of the Cossacks, which was a novelty in Kabul. He had been to Bukhara. He doesn't know what he's been doing in Bukhara. And we had, therefore, a common subject to converse upon without touching on politics. I found him intelligent and well-informed on the subject of Northern Asia. He very frankly said it was not the custom of Russia to publish to the world the results of its researches in foreign countries. (laughs) In other words, idiot, why are you telling (laughs) us uh, all your secrets? And I've read every word that you've written as was the Mm. case in France or England. Burns then added, I never again saw Mr. Vitkovich, although we exchanged sundry messages of high consideration, for I regret to say I found it impossible to follow the dictates of my personal feelings of friendship towards him, as the public service required the strictest watch. And this was no understatement because Burns Mm. had already begun to intercept his uh, his dining companion's letters back to Tehran and St. Petersburg and vice versa. So these two people meeting together. But then, you know, they are the epitome of the great game then because, you know, they are people who like each other. They are so like each other. And it is kind of a, for them, it's outmaneuvering, trying to think like the other person. Exactly. This is the gamiest of the great gamey bits, isn't it, really? It's very gamey. <laughs> but mm. as so often with the great game, it has very tragic results. And, and this is where we've always got to temper these wonderful stories with the reality. Who, who's cleverer? I mean, you've spent time with both of them. Who's the smarter of the two, Vitkovich or Burns, do you think? So they're very, they're, they're very similar characters, I think. They're both clever. They're both quite attractive, but they're both flawed. And okay. both of them have basically been bought by the secret services of their country. And both of them have left, and, and this will happen, as we'll see in, in a later period, to Burns. His principles will be bought by the promises of uh, a promotion. So after this Christmas dinner, I mean, Burns is doing his work. He has got to Dost Mohammed, his, his mate, first. Uh, and Dost Mohammed, he's not against making a deal with the Brits, is he? I mean, he wants to do business with the Brits. He's very, very keen to ally with the Brits. And he is basically keeping Vitkovic at arm's length, but, but keeping him in Kabul as a lever to try and get the British to sign an agreement with him. Mm. But Burns's enemies Pottinger and Wade, the two spy masters who are green with envy, have been rubbishing all that Burns has been sending south. They still are on this old idea that the answer is Shah Shuja. We've got to get rid of Dost Mohammed. And this is a project that Wade has been sort of sitting like a hen on an egg uh, for th- for 20 years for, if not 30 years. 
Uh, and he's not going to have some whippersnapper age 25 who who has come and jumped over him, who's gone and got a gold medal, who's met Queen Victoria, and he's been yeah. sitting all this time in Ludiana hatching his plans. And he basically, every dispatch that Burns sends from Kabul saying, we need to make an alliance, we need to make it quick, we've got only maximum a couple of months. Because the Russians are here. The Russians and they're going to do it. Yeah, Look. they're right here. I've just had Christmas dinner with one. And every dispatch arrives at the new very foolish uh, new governor general, Lord Auckland, with mm. a six-page disclaimer by Wade saying this is all nonsense. Burns is too young. He's inexperienced. He's overexcited, overpromoted. And Lord Auckland, we should say, is one of those sort of, you know, um, Etonian kind of clever, clever, and looks down on anyone who may be common, <laughs> could we say? Yes, Burns is, Burns is not his sort of uh, idea of a, 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 of a gentleman at all. And Lord Auckland, I should, we should also say, is the forebear of another disastrous British imperialist, uh, Anthony Eden, who, who mm. was responsible for Suez. So this, the, the first Afghan war and Suez, the two greatest disasters, arguably, in entire British imperial history, both generate from the same family. Anyway, so Burns is in Kabul saying, we have the opportunity of making an alliance with this man. Dost Mohammed is capable pro-British, wants to make a deal, and extremely popular. He's conquered three quarters of Afghanistan. He is the apple of everyone's eye. Shah Shuja is a, is a passe, has been, no one respects him. He's multiply defeated. You are complete idiots to go for Shah Shuja. Back Dost Mohammed, make this alliance. And meanwhile, he, he's in Kabul, charming Dost Mohammed, saying, I'm sure any minute we're going to get authorization for a treaty, and you and I can cement our personal friendship in a union of nations. And instead, he gets this disastrous letter sent by Auckland saying, Dost Mohammed's our enemy. No mm. one listens to him. He's not important. Wind your neck in, son. Yeah, wind it, your basically. neck in, son. You've got no authority mm. to make a deal with him. Tell him to expel the Russians or we will invade. And this is no way to speak to Dost Mohammed. Dost Mohammed is being offered at the same time 200,000 rubles by Vitkovic uh, mm -hmm. to rearm his entire army. And he's also offering military help against the Sikhs, which is what Dost Mohammed is longing to have. So the Russians are offering everything. The British are offering nothing. Are offering insults. Mm-hmm. And so Burns has no cards at all. And although he's giving absolutely the correct information and he's Dost Mohammed's old friend, mm. his mission ends in catastrophe. He has to withdraw in humiliation and Vitkovic is triumphant. Uh, Vitkovic is left in Kabul, the apple of Dost Mohammed's eye, and poor old Burns uh, heads off to India and mm. goes to Simla, which is newly established. It's now for, for the first time the summer capital of the British. And there he meets Lord Auckland and his sister, Emily Eden. My favourite. I love yeah, Emily Eden. Yeah, she's great. She's, she's one of the great wits of the time. Yeah. She's thoroughly rude. She's like the, you know, the trip advisor of her time. <laughs> <laughs> just, just scathing about the people and places she goes to. Yeah. And Burns is basically bought off by the British bureaucracy. He is offered a knighthood if he keeps quiet. And all the advisors get to him before he goes to see Auckland and say, look, just do not rock the boat. We know that you want this thing. You're not getting it, but you have the option of a leading role if the British go into Afghanistan, which is what we're now planning to do. We're going to declare war and you can be the deputy governor of Afghanistan and you will be Sir Alexander Burns. And Burns buys it. Well, he's got no choice. What else is he going to do? They didn't listen to him. He lost his great 
asset, you know, you can't, you can only do so much if nobody listens to you. You can only do so much. So he he allows himself to be bought off. He doesn't go public with his yeah. disagreements. Uh, he he accepts the knighthood. He is now Sir Alexander Burns. And on the first mm. of October, Auckland issues what comes to be known as this similar manifesto, formally declaring war and announcing Britain's intention to restore Shah Shuja to the Afghan Gosh. throne by force. It's one of the most catastrophic decisions. Could have been so different. There was absolutely mm. no reason for it. Mm. Dost Mohammed was no enemy of the British, was longing to make an alliance, and literally it's interdepartmental jealousies that bring about this, this completely unnecessary invasion. With a hefty dose of snobbery on the side. Healthy growth of snobbery, very important yeah. part of all British imperial history. So the similar manifesto, which is produced by Lord Auckland, is a tissue of lies. And it goes against everything the British know and have been told. Lord Auckland says that it has been proved to his lordship by the strong and unanimous testimony of the best authorities. And here Burns is named as someone supporting this mission, though he's opposed it at every stage. Uh, he said that to enter Afghanistan surrounded by his own troops, Shashuja will be acclaimed by his own people. But of course, in reality, he'll be a puppet at the head of a British army acting for British interests and closely supervised by British officials. And so this is not at all a homecoming that Shah Shuja has been hoping for. This is an entirely unnecessary imperial war. The best comment on this, and my favourite quote, I think it is Emily Eden, your great hero, Anita. Mm, yeah. uh, and she, she just says in her diary that day, poor, dear, peaceful George has gone to war. <laughs> Rather an inconsistency in his character. Rather an inconsistency in his character. She's just the mistress of understatement. Um, look, and this is also the underpinning, we must say, of your absolutely fantastic, and I really do mean this, and I mean, you know, you are a wonderful writer, but I think Return of the King, you're at the height of your powers. Oh, I think it's such a great you. book. I have to say, it's very nice. I mean, you know, as you know, as a writer, you don't tend to reread your own Can't books. Can't bear it. Oh my <laughs> exactly. God. Imagine. But it was very nice sitting in an armchair yesterday, rereading the first few chapters of Return of the King, which I've never uh, done before. And I had an excuse to do it with this pod. So thank you for letting me sound off. Same here. No, it was it was an absolute delight. Listen, that is all from this. What are we doing next week? Do you remember? Well, the Afghan war breaks out. This the is first it. Afghan war. This is this is poor, peaceful George going to war. Peaceful, peaceful George, rather an inconsistency in his character. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I swear one day we've got to do an episode on Emily Eden. I love her so much. Anyway, till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Durrumple.